Good evening, everyone. So please bow with me in a word of prayer as we open the word. Our Father, we thank you for the privilege of being able to gather together this evening again to worship, to praise you, to pray, to fellowship together, to proclaim your word, to study it. <clears throat> we thank you for this country in which we live that affords us such a privilege. And so we pray for those who govern us, those who are in authority over us, in keeping with your word. We pray first of all for the salvation of those who have not yet placed faith in Christ. That they may come to place faith in the only advocate between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, so that then they might be able to administer the kind of governance over the citizens of this country that is in keeping with your will. Our Father, we pray that you might visit us afresh as it were. We need the power of the Spirit of God in our community, in our homes, in our government, in our churches. There's so much rampant immorality and violence, disregard for the law, disregard for order. Father, we pray that you might turn the hearts of the citizens of this country back to you. We pray for your people that we might live as your people, salt of the earth and the light of the world, so that we might be able to do that significant ministry that you've given us here on this earth, to be salt, to be light, so that your name might be honored and glorified. It's in that name that we pray. Amen. Today we live in one of the most violent communities in this hemisphere. In our once tranquil, serene and peaceful nation, not a day goes by without someone being shot, stabbed, murdered, raped, buggered or just simply terrorized in some form or fashion. And it happens in the middle of the day, it happens in the middle of the night, it happens in the east, it happens in the west, it happens in the south, it happens in the north. It happens to men, it happens to women, it happens to children. It happens to everyone. It is totally pervasive. It happens in our homes, it happens in our cars, it happens in our churches. Crime, I say, violent crime is rampant and is clearly evident to all to see. However, just punishment in response to these violent crimes is not so evident, is not so pervasive. In fact, many are saying that just punishment, punishment to fit the crime is rare, if present at all. And as a result, Bahamians, including Bahamian Christians, are divided in their response as to how convicted criminals should be punished. This is especially true when it comes to the matter of capital punishment. Some are saying, increase the severity of punishment. Use the cat and hang the murderers. Others are saying, don't be so barbaric. Provide better prison facilities. Rather than giving only 12-inch black and white TV, give 21 or 54-inch color TV for them. Criminals should be rehabilitated, recycled, and put back into the community to be used over again, but this time for good rather than for evil. However, 
Something seems to be wrong with our rehabilitation plant. It doesn't seem to work out as it should. We are having more repeat offenders than ever before. In fact, violent crimes are even being committed by those who are free on bail or out on parole. However, even some Christians not only question but actively oppose the state or government administering capital punishment. They call it barbaric, inhuman, inhumane, archaic, unloving, non-Christian, uncivilized, or some other emotive term designed to ridicule or demean those who do believe that scriptures do in fact not only teach that the state has the right, but also that it is divinely commanded to exercise it as a God-given responsibility. Now one of the major charges that opponents to capital punishment make is that capital punishment is inhumane. That's where they focus on lack of love or lack of compassion. Or inhumane, or, or, or not human, inhuman, means that we're not acting like humans toward other humans, lack of humanity. One of the problems with this, however, is that these folk never bother to explain that one's understanding of humaneness or humanness is based on one's definition or philosophy of what it means to be human. Think about it for a moment. They use the phrase, they use the term humaneness or humanness, but they never define human, what it means to be human. Most responses from those who oppose capital punishment on this basis, whether they realize it or not, reflect the evolutionary and humanistic theory as to the creation of man. Simply put, this means, this view maintains rather, that man is the creator of his own destiny and therefore subject to no other standard but his own, either moral or ethical. Man is the only one who devises the standards by which he is to live. The Bible, in this view, is not the basis or standard for that belief. Man himself is. And that poses a problem. A serious problem, in fact. You see, this evolutionistic base leads naturally into a humanistic philosophy or worldview. Now, those are some big-sounding words, but they're very simple. To understand what we're saying is here is that humanness or inhumaneness are limited to man's ideas of himself that he himself has designed that's what it means to have a humanistic attitude or philosophy man himself comes up with a standard of who he is and what he is worth apart from the revelation of God However, this way of thinking, if faithfully and logically followed, leads not to certainty or stability or to order, but rather it leads to uncertainty, instability, and ethical and moral, and moral confusion. Why? Because man's ideas of himself changes. It varies. It is not absolute. 
Tomorrow is in a whole different ball game than it is today because it's not absolute. See, the point I wish to make here, however, is that the charge of inhumaneness is too shaky of a foundation upon which to base a call for the abolishing of capital punishment. In fact, it can be well argued that dependent upon one's view of humanness, it would be inhumane if the death penalty were in fact carried out on a deserving individual. And that, in fact, is exactly what I propose. In keeping with the word of God, I believe the Bible teaches that it is an inhumane act not to administer capital punishment when it is deserved. Because it flies in the face of a God who created man in his image and his likeness. So what I'm saying to you here, don't be shaken or caught off God with this emotional argument because I believe it is baseless and without objective foundation. By the way, associated with this emotional charged accusation is that the methods or procedures for carrying out the death sentence such as hanging or lethal injection as it is in the United States, they call those methods cruel and unusual punishment. For example, listen to the statement by the infamous ACLU of the United States. Quote, capital punishment, the ultimate denial of civil liberties, is a costly, irreversible, and barbaric practice. The epitome of cruel and unusual punishment. Quite a powerful statement, isn't it? That could scare anybody. But sorry, folks, this is factually and historically incorrect. The death penalty is not unusual. All the nations of the world have had the death penalty on the law books throughout most of their recorded history. And the death penalty remains on the status books of about half of the nations of the world, even in today's culture. In fact, even in the United States of America, when their constitution was established, the death penalty was already going on. As far as being unusual, these folk who make this idea must not know their history. Throughout history, methods of capital punishment included boiling the person in water, skinning them and leaving them to die. Crucifixion, you should be familiar with that one. The guillotine, firing squad, so we could go on and on, all kinds. And yet they say hanging and lethal injection is unusual. Where do these people come from? What history are they looking at? Or are they using the words unusual? in a different way. You see, listen to the words. It doesn't stand up. This is illogical, unfactual. Is that the right word? Yeah. Accusation. Cannot stand up under careful, rational 
intellectual historical scrutiny. The point I'm trying to make here is the charge that capital punishment today in the Bahamas is cruel and unusual is baseless and without historical objective reality. It's an emotionally laden charge with the objective creating a sense of false guilt. Don't you fall for it. Another major objection by those who oppose capital punishment is that capital punishment is not a deterrent to other would-be murderers. Here's how one publication put it, quote, capital punishment does not deter crime. You see the, the, how definite that is? See how absolute that is? Does not, no maybe here, does not. Scientific studies have consistently failed to demonstrate that executions deter people from committing crime. This would never stand up in court. Never. If evidence is brought against it. This is perhaps the most used and abused issue raised by those who oppose capital punishment today. However, again I say to you, this argument is based upon several faulty and fallacious assumptions. First of all, this argument assumes that deterrence is the purpose for capital punishment. It is not. Deterrence is not the purpose for capital punishment. You must get that in your head. Now we've already shown, I believe, from scripture this morning that theologically and biblically speaking, this is not the case. Capital punishment is advocated in scripture because of the fact that man is made in the image of God. And that for someone to take a person's life without the sanction of God himself is to perform an act of personal violence against God himself. That's the theological perspective, but there's also a legal perspective that we'll be looking at. You see, this is why this theological reason that I've explained today is why the state cannot be justly charged with murder when it executes a justly condemned murderer. The state is authorized by God to take that person's life. The same God who decrees that the one human being who has unlawfully taken the life of another human being, both made in the image, gives the state that right. That's why it's not murder. In fact, it's carrying out the will of God. Second, Dismissing capital punishment on the basis of a failure to deter all murders would remove all basis for any kind of crime if this is logically and consistently applied throughout the judicial system. That simply means that if you follow this reasoning, you would have no basis for prisons. It would logically require us to eliminate all prisons simply because of the fact that they do not seem to be any more effective in deterrence of crime in general than capital punishment is to murder in particular. If it were true that deterrence were the way that you marked the success or effectiveness of punishment, then we would have to say that prisons a thief should not be locked up in prison. 
Why? Because I believe, now this is a subjective thing, but I believe you will be just as subjective. You'll be just as objective in my subjectivity as I am. Does that make sense? By this I mean, I believe you'll agree with me that there are more thieves outside of prison than there is in prison. Don't you agree with that? Now, if it were true these arguments, that wouldn't be the case. We wouldn't have no thieves running around. Because you lock them up, it should deter them. Isn't that right? They don't say get rid of the prisons, but yet when it comes to capital punishment, they say get rid of capital punishment. Illogical, doesn't make sense. Irrational, doesn't follow through. Let me give you an illustration. But by the way, let me say that if that was true, we would not be making more prisons or larger prisons. We'd be breaking them down and closing them up. But let me give you another illustration. If the deterrent argument is valid, in other words, the main purpose for punishment is deterrent, then we would void the long, long use of lighthouses in our nation in our, and amongst our islands. We should take all of the lighthouses off, close them up, knock them down, cut the lights off. Why? Simply because of the pragmatic, obvious fact that there are no ships on the rocks next to the lighthouse. You follow me? There are no wrecks. If you're going to measure the effectiveness of deterrence by those who fail to be deterred, that's what you'll have to do. Right or wrong? You follow me? But now look at it another way. How many boats, ships, vessels were swerved off from the wrecks because the lighthouse was there? You don't know. No way to measure right or wrong. Right. That's why this idea of deterrence is foolishness. It's a red herring. It doesn't stand up. It is an absolute irrational nonsense. It's impossible to be able to measure the deterrence of any punishment, much less capital punishment. This is the way a poet by the name of Hyman Varshley puts it. The death penalty is a warning, just like a house, lighthouse throwing its beams out to sea. We hear about shipwrecks, but we do not hear about the ships the lighthouse guides safely on their way. We do not have proof of the number of ships it saves but we do not tear the lighthouses down. Besides, logically speaking, if capital punishment is even a potential deterrent, then that is a significant enough social reason to implement it. Not to do so is to give the preference and advantage to the murderer and rather than the victim. And in spite of the repeated statements that some capital punishment proponents make that there is absolutely no evidence whatsoever to show that capital punishment deters murder. The opposite is in fact the case. That's why when I come to this one, I have no fear to say that most of the people who are aware of these things are just lying. That's all because of so much evidence out there to the contrary. I know that's harsh, but I don't know what else to say. Because if something is so evident and you're denying that it's there, what in the world is it? Is it blindness? 
or dishonesty. Newman's studies have shown otherwise, and in fact shown that it can deter. It is actually dishonest, I believe, for opponents of capital punishment to make such a claim. I'm going to present just two instances to validate my, my claim here. In fact, if there were only one instance of a study showing this, this claim, their claim would be wrong. Because they like to say there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever. Dr. Isaac Ehrlich at the University of Chicago, he made a study that strongly suggests that capital punishment is deterrent. This is what, he's, this is what is recorded. His research showed that if the death penalty is used in a consistent way, by the way, as stipulated in scripture, it means that it is done speedily once everything is done properly. It may deter as many as eight murders for every execution carried out. That's a specific study. Now, although his conclusions, of course, were rigorously challenged by those who opposed him, further cross-sectional analysis confirmed his conclusions. His research showed that if the death penalty is used in a consistent way, it may deter as many as eight murders for every execution carried out. That's one test. But far back as 1985, a similar study was published by the economist Stephen Lawson or Lason, at the University of North Carolina. And that study showed, quote, that every execution of a murder deters on average 18 murderers. The study also showed that raising the number of death sentences by 1% would present, prevent 105 murders. However, only 36% of all murder cases result in a death sentence, and of those, only 0.1% are actually executed. Now, that's, that's an established test, analysis that was done. But those who oppose capital punishment will claim that most studies show that the death penalty has no effect on the murder rate at all. But here's another element. That's only true because those studies have been focused on inconsistent executions, not consistent executions. Capital punishment, like all other procedures, must be used consistently in order to be effective as a deterrent. But in the United States as well, in the Bahamas, if it's one thing that is not consistent, it's a carrying out of the death sentence. So how can you make any kind? of a stable analysis as to whether it's deterrent. This is a red herring. This doesn't make sense. It doesn't stand up under scrutiny of people with rational minds. Here's the words of another researcher. He says, quote, the evidence shows that whenever capital punishment is applied consistently, or against a small number rate, murder rate, it has always been followed by a decrease in murder. I have yet to see an example on how the death penalty has failed to reduce the murder rate under these conditions. And yet we still have these people who oppose it saying, there's no test, no evidence whatsoever that the death penalty deters. It's untrue. It's false. It's a red herring. It's a straw man. 
And one of the amazing things in my research for this, way back in the time of, of uh, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, he made a statement way back. This is what he said. The professional law enforcement officer is convinced from experience that the hardened criminal has been deterred from killing based on the prospect of the death penalty. That's J. Edgar Hoover. That is not even regarded by these people who say that death penalty does not deter. It's a red herring. Don't be swayed. Don't be fooled. Don't be intimidated by that false philosophy. And so I say that the claim that there's no evidence whatsoever that capital punishment deters murder is patently false. Don't be swayed, I, I say, by such baseless and even false claims. But now this leads us to the, the logical question. And the question is this. What is the fundamental purpose for capital punishment? What is the fundamental purpose for capital punishment? Let me remind you of the biblical perspective. We laid it out this morning. A primary function of the state is to demonstrate that it exists to uphold the dignity and godship of God through the proper protection and punishment of man made in his image when they go contrary to his law. I think we laid that out this morning. Those who cite deterrence as a reason to oppose capital punishment tacitly assume that the purpose is deterrence. But this is not true. Is it true even from a social or legal perspective? Is the responsibility of government to enforce, is it the responsibility of government to enforce only the laws that deter? Or is it the responsibility to simply enforce all just laws, regardless of the outcome? The Bible, of course, has a clear answer to this question. And I think we answered that this morning as well. You see, what I'm trying to say here from this biblical point of view is that what is not being factored into the current discussion, especially by Christians, is the fact that a primary function of the state is to demonstrate that it exists to uphold the dignity of God through the proper protection and punishment of man made in the image of God. Now we're going to discuss this in detail when we, next Lord's Day, Lord willing, when we come to uh, uh, Romans 13. But contrary to the God-centered, God-focused issue of capital punishment as revealed in Scripture, the current discussion focuses primarily and exclusively on man, man-centered results. In other words, the focus is what we call anthropocentric, focusing on the welfare of man, not God-centered, focusing on the welfare of God. That's why I believe it's impossible, it's impossible for a humanist or a person who leaves God out of the picture to come to a true understanding of the purpose for capital punishment. It's impossible. 
This is why a theological argument for capital punishment can only really be accepted and believed by those who believe that the Bible is the word of God. Everybody else will think it's foolishness. Because we're focusing on God, not man. And when we take our eyes off man and put it on God, as far as the humanistic person is concerned, it's foolishness. Now you have to accept that. That's just the way it is. Here's my point. And now we bring in the legal perspective. Justice demands that the properly convicted murderer forfeits his life. I'm not talking about mercy. I'm not even talking about grace here. I'm talking about justice. Because that's what the state is to be concerned with. Justice demands that a properly convicted murderer forfeits his life. That's just punishment. Anything apart from that is not just. It might be loving, it might be gracious, it might be merciful, but it's not just. Are you following me? Punishment fitting the crime is what justice is all about. And so from a purely legal perspective, it is important for us to remember that the state punishes criminals on behalf of the community, not the individual citizen. This is the difference between criminal law and civil law. Civil law relates to disputes between the individual citizens. The state may intervene judicially, but it is not the offended party. But however, when it comes to murder, the state is offended. That's why it's called capital. It must be borne in mind then that logically speaking, the only grounds other than moral, religious, and philosophical upon which one may argue for the abolishment of the death penalty for convicted murder is that of mercy. You cannot argue for the acquittal of a murderer established to be a murderer on the basis of justice. It's impossible. You'll have to argue it on the basis of mercy. It cannot be done so on the basis of justice alone. The whole idea of mercy is that it avoids or denies justice. Did you get that? The whole idea of mercy is that I don't experience justice. But you see, it's not the position of the state to administer mercy. When we come to Romans 13, it's the responsibility of the Christian to do that. But the state, in order to execute the reason for its existence in protecting the assistance, must administer justice. The state exists to provide justice for its citizens, I say, not mercy. Justice demands that a properly convicted murderer forfeits his life. That's just punishment. Punishment fits the crime. It also happens to be biblical. The state's punishment of criminals who are guilty of capital offenses is executed in the name of the highest authority granted that state. And as we're going to see when we look at Romans 13, from a theological and biblical perspective, it does so also on the authority of God himself. And he does it for the upholding of his divine rulership over his creatures. Now this brings into play, consciously or unconsciously, our religious, moral, philosophical convictions. 
our worldview. We cannot come to any conclusions on these things without basing it on how we see the world. Listen carefully. Are your minds turning? Are you all getting any of this? All right. Danny, you're laughing over there. Brains burning, eh? Yeah. But you see, remember God says we are to love him with our what? Soul, mind. Very few people love God with their mind. We just don't think about him that much. But that's what we're trying to do tonight. To love God with our mind. Now listen carefully. Legally and biblically speaking, capital punishment is a unique issue that cannot be properly understood apart from biblical revelation. That's a hard pill to swallow, but that's true. Why? Because as I showed this morning, capital punishment and the institution of the state began all at the same time. And they have a symbiotic, is that the right word, relationship. They draw upon each other. They feed upon each other. And the truth about the value and sanctity of human life is only given in Scripture. And so if we accept the sanctity of human life, we must accept everything else that goes with it. And God say he protects it by giving the right to the state to take the life of a human being who takes the life of another human being intentionally and unlawfully. Listen, friends, there is absolutely no legal requirement mandating that capital punishment has to function as a deterrent to crime. None. So whenever we focus on this, it's a red herring. It's a straw man. Legally speaking, it's a non-issue. But that's the kind of world we live in. Let me give you another big word. You ever heard of the word? What is it? I forgot. Postmodernism. You ever heard of the word postmodern? That's the word we live in. It's the world in which we live. Nothing is absolute. You can't nail any truth to the wall. Everything is subjective. It shouldn't be so for the believer. The word of God is sure and it stands. And so the argument that it is not a deterrent to crime is only a red herring, a feeble attempt to confuse the issue. The only principal question here is, does the punishment accomplish the mandated purpose? That's the question. And the answer to that question when it comes to capital punishment is yes. If, in fact, capital punishment also helps to prevent some crime in the future, that's icing. That's added benefit gained from the capital punishment process. But each execution of a criminal is a positive proof of the state's moral and legal authority to carry out that punishment and a validation that the process works. Listen carefully to this. The conviction itself may not deter the criminal, but the execution always does. Listen to this quote. 
Although neither mandated by law nor required on moral grounds, capital punishment is a 100% effective deterrent against crimes of the criminal whose death sentence is being carried out. In all of human history, not one single executed murderer ever committed another crime. Now, if anything can be proven, it's that. That's an absolute. C.S. Lewis, this is what he says, quote, and I love this one. Deterrence in itself would be a very wicked thing to do. On the classic theory of punishment, it was, of course, justified on the ground that man deserved it. Why, in heaven's name, am I to be sacrificed to the good of society in this way? Unless, of course, I deserve it. In other words, inflicting a penalty merely to deter rather than to punish for deeds done is the very definition of cruelty. A purely deterrent penalty is one where a man or a person is punished not for something that he did, but for something someone else might do. Listen to how Lewis explains it. Quote, if deterrence is all that matters, the execution of an innocent man, provided the public thinks he is guilty, would be fully justified. Do you see this reasoning? The deterrence is a red herring. It's a foolish argument to make if you think through it carefully. Now another charge associated with justice and cruelty is that capital punishment is an act of human vengeance or revenge. They say it's a hangover from the Old Testament barbaric eye for eye, tooth for tooth concept. I mean, we, this one really irritates me, this one, because it shows so much ignorance of Bible truth, really. And such statements really reveal the lack of understanding concerning the true biblical teachings on vengeance and the law and the law. Capital punishment does indeed reflect vengeance. But it's not human vengeance, it's the vengeance of God himself. And we're going to see that in Romans 13. In fact, God calls the state, his agency, for executing his vengeance. Vengeance of his wrath. And we're going to look at that next week, Lord willing. However, the suggestion that the eye for an eye, tooth for tooth principle in biblical law is barbaric shows an ignorance of the understanding of the Old Testament teaching. What is being stated in this law is not that if someone gorges out my eye, I am supposed to gorge out his eye. Or if someone knocks out my teeth, I'm supposed to knock out his teeth. In fact, it's these very actions that this law is seeking to prevent. It's amazing how they twist this thing. The eye for an eye law of Moses presents the principle of a penalty fitting the crime in a historical setting in which compensation was the primary means of punishment. They never put people in jail and all of that thing in those days. They did compensation. In other words, according to the Jewish law, if someone gorges out my eye, 
then he should compensate me financially or otherwise for what I would lose as a result of my losing my eye. You understand what I'm saying? He would not have to compensate me for what I would lose if I lose my foot. He'll only have to compensate me for what I would lose if I lose my eye. And so the very thing that these people who oppose capital punishment is saying that this law is doing, actually it's doing the opposite. It's preventing abuse. It is a preventing excessive and cruel punishment. The standard for recompense was equality and balance. Penalty fitting the crime. Not an eye for a foot or a finger for an arm, but an eye for an eye and so on, compensation-wise. It was this standard that set Israel apart from the pagan nations around them who did in fact gorge out a person's eye if that person gorged out somebody else's eye. Contrary to popular belief then. The eye for an eye principle was designed by God to limit and prevent excessive or barbaric vengeance, not promote it. As stated by those who opposed capital punishment, this was how the Jewish people were to show that as a people of God, they were different from the pagan nations that surrounded them, who did in fact took an eye for an eye. And so unfortunately, this text has been used by some Christian leaders to convey the exact opposite of what it actually teaches. And they are using it as a basis for opposing capital punishment. It is a shame. And it shows a disregard for the true teaching of the word of God. One more. Closely aligned to this non-issue, and I call that a non-issue. I really do. Because... I wouldn't even waste my time sometimes in talking with people about this. Because you have to be careful where you cast your pearls. Do you all understand that? All right. <laughs> Closely aligned to this non-issue, this misinformed cruelty charge, is the one that divides God into a good God and a bad God. You know you do that in the police sometimes, they say. When you're trying to get somebody to talk, you get a good guy come in, he's a good policeman. You don't talk to the good policeman, so you get the bad policeman come in and try to get him to talk. Well, that's how you see God. A good God and a bad God. The good God is in the New Testament. The bad God is in the Old Testament. Split personality God. Now, unbelievably, all of these theologically and what I consider to be biblically baseless reasons for posing capital punishment was stated by Archbishop Patrick Pinder while addressing the legal fraternity during the annual Red Cross St. Francis Xavier Cathedral on West Bay Street. Here's what he says, I take it from the Bahamas Journal. Among those who support the death penalty, there are many unvaried justifications for, for, for supporting Notice now, this most extreme form of punishment. Archbishop Pinder said, there are those who believe in the law of retaliation, retribution, and essentially have an eye for an eye approach. Amazing. 
Many such persons, he's talking about me now, can even be found in the religious community. He said, they are often the most vocal and the most inflexible. They openly prefer God in his Old Testament persona, who issued summary judgments according to the letter of the law. The God who became flesh for love of human and the God of mercy and redemption simply does not satisfy their worldview. Particularly pertinent on this occasion is the view that the death penalty is a deterrent to crime. That's the words of the Archbishop. A man who leads one of the largest denominations in the Bahamas. And every reason he gives is baseless and factual and is just a straw man. Every one of them. Notice. Archbishop Pinder is promoting every one of the classical mythological reasons for opposing capital punishment. In this he enjoys the support of the Bishop of the Anglican Church who made the same statement. As well as Bishop Simeon Hall in the New Covenant Baptist Church. We always fight about this. Now all of these men are men of God I respect and they are heavy hitters. But in my humble opinion, they all strike out when it comes to reasons for opposing capital punishment. By the way, I wrote a letter to the Tribune, to the Guardian, and to the Journal in answer to this, and none of them printed it. <laughs> End of the game, eh? End of the game. Ah, send him again. All right. You see, these folk contrast the God of the Old Testament with the God of the New Testament as though they're two different gods. The God of the Old Testament pictures as being barbaric, cruel, uncivilized. These are all terms they use vengeful and vindictive. Why? Because he endorsed and even commanded capital punishment. They recognize that he did. But he only did it because he was a bad God. The God of the New Testament, on the other hand, as manifested in the person of Jesus Christ, is kind, loving, forgiving, compassionate, and the one who would not be so mean as to endorse, much less command capital punishment. Tremendous contrast. And so this concept of a contrasting dual-natured God, my friends, cannot be, cannot be maintained biblically. Impossible. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. In fact, Jesus Christ himself said that he and the Father are one. And that he did not, that he did only what the Father told him to do. He only did what he saw the Father did. And in Romans chapter 10, the Apostle Paul makes it clear that unless one believes that Jesus of the New Testament is the God of the Old Testament, a person cannot be saved. Listen to his words very carefully. This is another passage that even many Christians misinterpret. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Notice that it's written in capital L's. Jesus is Yahweh. That's the term for God in the Old Testament. 
If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Yahweh and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now all reputable Bible scholars of all traditions affirm that this term Lord in this passage refers to the Yahweh or Jehovah of the Old Testament. In other words, in order to be saved, you must believe that Jesus Christ is the God of the Old Testament. And yet these reverend gentlemen are saying that the Jesus of the Old Test New Testament is not the God of the Old Testament. You know, I, I don't know if we go so far as to say, I don't want to go, I better not even say that. But that's a tremendous, that to me that's an awful teaching. That Jesus is different from his father in the Old Testament. How can they not see that the divine love that forgives and the divine justice that condemns are attributes of the same just and living and loving God? They like to go says, you know, Jesus forgives. The idea is we should forgive the murderer. But now suppose we took that as our guidelines for living. Forgive everybody who sins. Would you need prisons? Somebody comes into your house and rapes your wife, rapes your daughter, whatever. Oh, forgive them, that's all. Let's put them in the rehabilitation machine and make them over. After all, Jesus is a loving God. He forgave the woman who committed adultery. Therefore, we should forgive everybody for all sins. Does that make sense? But yet, that's what they're promoting. But they don't see it. They don't see it. There was a classic example of this with Mother Teresa. Now, you know what? You can't be careful what you say about Mother Teresa. But during her lifetime, there was a major uh, uh, case going on with capital punishment. But this fellow, uh, who's been held for a long time, but get, getting ready to, to, to finally execute him. But Mother Teresa made an appeal on his behalf. The state should forgive, because Jesus forgives. Now, doesn't that sound loving? But that is exactly contrary to what God says about convicted murderers. Now, I don't sound saying this harshly. I'm not saying arrogantly. What God says about convicted murderers, as far as the state is concerned, is execute them. But somehow, we feel that we are more loving, more gracious, more merciful than God himself. See, that's when we put our humanistic thinking against the thoughts of God. And God says, your thoughts and my thoughts are far apart as heaven is from earth. You see. And so, the God of the New Testament manifested in the person of Jesus Christ, and we might show this as we go on, had more to say about hell and the nature of its terrible eternal punishment than anyone else in the New Testament. In fact, he had more to say about hell than all of the writers combined. Sometimes we forget 
that the author, the writer of the book of Revelation is Jesus Christ. The whole book of Revelation should be written in red letters because it's Jesus Christ speaking. And if you want to see what he says about people who live by the sword, is to read what he says. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. That's Jesus. And so we have this distorted, warped view of Jesus Christ. We have made him in our own image. And so when Jesus talks about hell, and when he describes it in all its terror, is he inhumane? Is he barbaric? Is he unloving? No, he's just. It simply underlines the fact that he, by his nature, he is divine holiness, divine justice, and divine love. And the most wonderful, beautiful, ugly, awesome, wonderful picture of the love and justice of Jesus Christ is Calvary. God did not spare his own son, but he offered him up for us all. How? By using the then current means of capital punishment. And that was a manifestation, the greatest manifestation of the greatest love ever demonstrated. But at the same time, it was greatest manifestation of justice ever manifested. And so, from my humble perspective, none of the classical objections raised by opponents to the legal and biblical reasons for the administration of capital punishment is found to have any intellectually sound, factual, or rational basis for being accepted as valid enough reasons for removing capital punishments for the law books of the Bahamas or any other place for that matter. As always, my friends, I say to you again, God's word has been given to us to know the mind and the heart of God on these social issues. When you discuss them, discuss them based on what God says, not what you think. Questions, write them out, bring them in. Next time, Lord willing, we'll discuss them.